Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Annie Kelly about her podcast, Vaccine, the Human Story. Dr. Kelly earned her doctorate in American Studies in 2020 from the University of East Anglia. Her dissertation is entitled Fear, Hate, and Counter-Subversion, American Anti-Feminism Online. She specializes in research related to contemporary social movements, digital discourse analysis, and their relation to race, gender, and sexuality in American politics. Her writings have appeared in the New York Times, and since 2019, she's been the UK correspondent for QAnon Anonymous, which the Washington Post named Podcast of the Year. I've been a huge fan with her work on QAnon Anonymous and with that podcast as a whole, so I'm delighted to have her on New Books in History. Dr. Kelly is currently a postdoctoral researcher with Everything is Connected, Conspiracy Theories in the Age of the Internet. But today, we're going to talk about her six-part podcast that she wrote and hosted, Vaccine, the Human Story. Most of the episodes were released in 2021, but the final installment came out in the spring of 2022. All of them are available on Patreon and most podcast platforms. The series is thoughtful, well-researched, and has engaging post-production. I strongly recommend it. Uh, Dr. Kelly, Annie, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, as I've said, uh, I'm a huge fan of your reporting for QAnon Anonymous, and was excited to hear that you were putting out this series on the history of the smallpox vaccine, um, not the least of which is that's one of my areas of research, history of medicine and disease. Um, but before we get into the podcast, would you please tell us a bit about yourself and your development as a scholar and what drew you to American studies and the subjects in which you specialize? Yeah, sure. So I actually did my first degree in American studies when I was 18 years old, uh, which is very hard to relate to looking back on the decision that I made to study it then. Um, I think I wanted to study both literature and politics, which I would later learn is called interdisciplinary studies, but I'm not really sure I knew that at the time. Um, And American Studies was one of the few interdisciplinary courses uh, that was offered in the UK. Um, And while I was studying that, I became very interested in, I guess, radical political thought, uh, both on the left and the right. Um, There's something about radicalism, whether I agree with it or not, which I think has always really interested me. Um, So from there, I began to notice what I felt like was a a kind of new vein of internet extremism surrounding feminism, which I wrote my PhD about, uh, which evolved as I was researching it actually into a kind of more coherent radical right ideology, uh, which some would call the alt-right. So I was, uh, had front row seats to that, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that was happening as you're in graduate school working on this project. Yeah. uh, My PhD was sort of 
very forced to move with the times quite quickly. And so it sort of became about anti-feminism, but also, I guess, about this vein of extremism that was uh, coming out during the Trump presidential campaign as well. Yeah. And um, so I, I became aware of you for your work with QAnon uh, Anonymous. How did you uh, how did you come to join that team? <clears throat> well, I'm not very funny in real life, but <laughs> I am quite funny on Twitter. Um, and so I managed to gain a following, I suppose, um, through, I think, talking about my research, but also joking a lot about my research, which was very therapeutic for me, studying these kind of quite radical movements. Um, and I have to confess, I hadn't actually heard of the QAnon Anonymous pro. Uh, I hadn't really actually heard of the QAnon Anonymous podcast until they put out a tweet saying they were looking for a UK correspondent. And it was actually some of their listeners who followed me who were like, you have to get Annie Kelly, you have to get Annie Kelly. Um, so I, so they got in contact with me and we did a, a little brief um, interview. I think I wrote something for them about Nigel Farage, who was a far-right politician here. Uh, they liked it and yeah, I joined the team. Well, do they know this? Do they know that uh, you didn't know who they were? <laughs> no, I don't think. I think this is my first time admitting it. <laughs> right, right. I got this. I got the scoop on the inside dirt on the podcast. Um, um, what What are some of the stories that you've uh, you've covered for uh, for them? Yeah. So, um, I've tried to, I guess, give an introduction to various rock various far-right cultural figures here in the UK, so people like Nigel Farage and Tommy Robinson. Um, but I think as my confidence has grown as a journalist and a researcher, um, I've also been able to do, I think, I guess, sort of little historical kind of conspiracies or mysteries that interest me. Um, so I did one which was about the uh, mystery of the princes in the tower, uh, here in England uh, from the Middle Ages. I did one about, probably one of my favorite ones, which was about um, the allegations that during the troubles in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, that MI5 were responsible for creating a hoax satanic panic in the hopes that this would uh, diminish support for the IRA and Catholic communities. Um, and I think that's the sort of thing that really interests me, little historical oddities like that yeah and and I, I was also fascinated by your accounts of the way in which um the QAnon uh uh virus forgive me um heard it crossed boundaries and jumped in the atlantic and you know something that is so seems so quintessentially american i mean it's so deeply rooted in american politics was t taking root in the uk and in in parts of europe and that was that was a real scary moment um and and i appreciated your uh reporting on some of the demonstrations and and so yeah, forth. Yeah, going to the rallies in the UK, I do have to say, was quite mind-blowing for me because yeah. I, I, I shared the same sort of feeling that this was a an American conspiracy theory. And I, of course, knew that um, the UK had its own QAnon believers. Uh, I think we're pretty consistently sort of either second or third, depending on what Canada's up to that month, kind of the second country with the most QAnon posts. Uh, but I think you can hear a statistic like that, 
But I think actually going out and talking to people and interviewing them um, really makes it very real for you, hearing kind of QAnon theories come out of a British accent. <laughs> With a British accent, yeah. Um, the, I mean, in the, in the Canadian uh, thread is fascinating too, with the Queen of Canada figure and 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 so forth. Um, the um, so um, this podcast is a bit of a departure from most of your work. Um, it's a podcast on the history of the disease smallpox and on the history of the vaccine. Um, how did you come to do this? I mean, this is radically different than um, most of your work on. Um, online um, anti-feminism and, uh, and radicalism. So what, what inspired you to, uh, to write and host this six-part series? So I think in my field of research, um, it's, it was impossible not to notice the rise of vaccine conspiracy theories. Actually, even before there was a COVID vaccine, if you can imagine, there were already rumblings that, you know, this virus was um, fake and the vaccine was set up to poison us all and kill off 90% of the population um, in the subcultures that I study. Um, but often the way that conspiracy theorists will work is they will put out a lot of um, plausible scientific sounding claims. Now, I'm not a scientist, but in order to understand why what they were saying was wrong, I had to kind of learn a little bit more about vaccines themselves. Um, and then I think that took me to the history of vaccines um, and the history of smallpox, uh, because smallpox was the first disease to have a vaccine. And I think I was just really taken aback by what I found while I was researching that, um, by the way that, you know, I'd always kind of assumed smallpox was horrible, but kind of learning about what a constant feature of so much of human life it was until very, very recently. Um, and I was particularly, I think, taken with the stories of how before vaccines had ever existed, people had experimented with the concept of immunity. Um, and this was all going on during the COVID pandemic, which I think felt like a very dark time for a lot of people. Um, and I actually found this kind of research very reassuring in a way. I, I felt very like, I always think in times where it feels like everything is collapsing around you, feeling that kind of closeness with the past um, can feel quite, yeah, reassuring, you know, that you're not the first person to feel this way. Um, and then I suppose it occurred to me that this was a feeling that maybe lots of people needed, or at least some people needed. Um, and it could be persuasive, potentially, for people who were on the fence about uh, vaccines or public health or this sort of thing as well. Yeah, and the smallpox vaccine um, has a, you know, spoiler alert, um, a happy ending. Yes. I mean, you, you, you start the series with the announcement in 1980 that smallpox has been eradicated in the wild, right? So it only, it only exists in, in a few labs, um, um, but it's a success story. And so many of the history of disease narratives are are really about the true awfulness and and don't have that many great successes like uh, malaria for example is this constant like cat and mouse game with um it, it, we, we still can't get a handle on it right um 
so yeah we yeah, won I'd never like, thought... <laughs> humanity yeah. won hooray <laughs> i'd never thought about that but that probably was a bit of an impetus for me as well i mean uh as you say so much of my research on uh radicalism and conspiracy theories also don't have happy endings do you know um in a, a way often the stories that i tell on the q and anonymous podcast by necessity don't have happy endings because i think that's what makes them worth telling so maybe it was a little bit of lockdown sadness and i i needed to talk about something good that humanity did for once <laughs> <laughs> and and it was truly an international project as you uh as you get into in, in the um in the podcast which i um which i, I as a world historian I, I really appreciated that um so how did you do the research for the series? Um, at the end, you you thank a number of scholars and, and a research team. Um, at the end of every episode, you do that. Um, was this more collaborative than your traditional um, academic work? Yes, definitely. Um, I was very aware, essentially, that I was a interloper in the history of medicine. And coming from extremism studies. Uh, I know also how annoying it is when a newcomer pops in and decides they're going to popularize your whole field. You've all been doing it wrong. Um, so I really wanted to have the help of researchers in the field, um, as well as I think offering paid work to early career researchers, because so much of that job is working for free, as I well know. Um, so early on, I spoke to Dr. Gareth Millwood, who's a historian at the University of Birmingham, who was so helpful. He just sent me a folder full of files and PDFs and books I should check out, which just was amazing. Um, I then hired a researcher, Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, who's a historian of healthcare, to help me work through all of that. And finally, Kristen Brigg-Ortiz, who is a PhD student of public health, worked as a proofreader to catch all of my many, many mistakes in the first couple of drafts. So it was <laughs> a collaborative project. Right, right. And then were you the one who brought the podcasting expertise from your previous work? That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, I, I think it's a, a, just a fantastic way to reach a much larger audience um, on these subjects in, in medical history, which admittedly, you know, unless they're published in the real sort of like popular sensational vein, history of medicine work uh, is not very good at getting a much larger audience. I mean, on the other hand, you know, you've got your fantastic people like Laurie Garrett, who going back to the 90s, um, wrote The Coming Plague and and then um, the set the follow-up book about the collapse of the um, public health I think that book came out around 2000 or so, um, and and a few others. Mike Davis has done some some good work uh, popularizing um, uh, uh, the threat of avian flu, but you know, so many academics in history of medicine aren't that great at writing outside of the academy, and you know, this podcast forum I think is is really fantastic for that. Um, you know. Sort of now that I'm bashing the um, uh, the field of history of medicine, um, <laughs> which which I'm sort of an interloper into, um, I found it quite that quite a bit of the English language scholarship in history of medicine and history of diseases is, is oftentimes very Eurocentric, and um, you know there's it's it's inner inner you know it, it's caught up in the history of imperialism and caught up in sort of narratives of the Western Enlightenment and so forth. Um, 
and again, creates this very Eurocentric narrative. But this uh, podcast series does a really great job at presenting a wide range of geographic perspectives and the way different cultures and um, historical actors around the world um, uh, experienced the disease and also contributed to humanity's eventual triumph over smallpox. Could you say a few words on the the global nature of your narrative? Yeah, so when I was taught about vaccines in school, which was, I think, literally one science lesson uh it was very quick and it was just you know that dr jenner an englishman of course came up with the idea out of whole cloth um and that wasn't very interesting to me um so when i began researching i think it was the international nature of the kind of evolution of uh, inoculation into vaccination that really captured me um and I think I find that found that I think I found that really moving, um, probably because I think in the far right subcultures that I study, um, you know, there's often this very bastardized version of history in which everyone was in their discrete ethnic pockets until horrible old modernity came along. Do you know? Um, and so I kind of come I come from an immigrant background myself, um, and I've always found it therefore reassuring, I think, to read historical stories of cultural exchange and have how knowledge travels across continents and just how completely human and kind of natural that is. Um, and I also wanted it to be a story that everyone could relate to. You know, I didn't want it to be a story where I'm trying to connect people to the past and people are watching it and saying, well, you know, my ancestors weren't even in Europe at this time, do you know? So I did my very best with the uh, English language sources I had, which is obviously not perfect um, because that means you miss out a lot. But I did my best to try and make it as um, broad as possible in that sense. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I mean, the global nature both precedes, you know, the the Edward Jenner moment, but also continues on with the way in which um, the uh, public health and vaccination was tied in with the history of imperialism. Yes, exactly. I mean, they're so inextricable um, from one another. And it was something I worried a little bit about while I was writing the series where I was like, you know, am I banging on a bit too much about empire and imperialism? <laughs> but in a way, no, it's not, impossible. Not, not a, in, to... in my opinion, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, it's impossible to tell that story without, you know, mentioning the effects that imperialism had. Yeah. And, and so much of public health is developed in the colonies where European um, empires can behave in a much more authoritarian manner than they could at home in the UK or in France or in, in Belgium or what have you. And also, um, you know, getting to sort of the darker side of, of um, vaccination development is that um, – I've I've looked at the way in which uh, French scientists were able to do uh, field testing in the empire, um, particularly on Vietnamese, um, that they would never be able to do on French. Um, that uh, you know, forcing uh, you know they were trying to develop a uh, a cholera vaccine in the um, in the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties, and they were forcing injections of the serum uh, 
into uh, the arms of Vietnamese at the, literally at the barrel of a gun. And, you know, a spoiler alert, we still don't have an effective uh, 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 serum against uh, cholera. So what were, what were they jabbing into these poor people's arms? And um, again, it was all in the unequal uh, power relationships of, of, of empire. Um, yes, completely. And I think, you know, those legacies really last, you know, they really endure. Um, and I think they're at least one of the reasons why um, you'll often get uh, ethnic minority groups in former, you know, um, former imperial powers. It's still very distrustful of public health and healthcare, And it's, um, I just want to kind of address that in the story, because otherwise you're just cheap propaganda, right? You know, I think vaccines are brilliant and I think they're great. Um, but I think you also, if you want to talk about how great they are, you need to address the ethical complexity that has, that is part of their legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and as, you know, as scholars, as historians, we need a complete portrait of, uh, of where these things that are so essential came from. And, um, that includes various forms of past injustice. Um, so as I said, the series is made up of six episodes. Um, so how about we, we go through each episode sort of one by one, just give a, a quick blurb. Um, I mean, I <laughs> we could go on forever. Well, we could do a, a whole six-part uh, series <laughs> you, you introduce so many fascinating characters. And um, you're, you, are, you are a fantastic storyteller. Um, and the way that... Um, uh, you combine your narrative with um, voice actors and some really, really just tight push production. It's just such a captivating um, series. Um, but the the first episode is entitled "An Impossible Dream," and here you talk about uh, responses from around the world to the disease of small to- smallpox. So, how have different cultures wrestled with uh, with smallpox? Yeah, so it's. Um... It's worth saying here, I think, that we actually don't know for sure how old smallpox is, Mm -hmm. uh, which I found quite annoying when I was trying to research this, (laughs) because it would just be really great if you could just be like, smallpox began in 252 AD. (laughs) Um, uh, But of course, many historians of medicine will resist saying that just because a disease from, you know, that's described in antiquity sounds like smallpox, it definitely is. Um... Some you have argued that it, it may be older even than the pyramids. Uh, there are I found some quite tantalizing descriptions of some Egyptian mummies which have marks on their skin that could be smallpox. So, we, but we just don't know. Um, but what we do know for sure is that as long as humans have suffered from disease, they've also tried to treat it. Um, but for most of human history, medicine is also. But for most of human history, medicine is, of course, deeply tied up in religion. Um, And so the most common form of treatment is to perform a ritual that's both meant to treat the patient, but also to call on a deity or a mythological figure that you believe can help you. And what I found really interesting looking into the way that these kind of deities and figures are kind of conceived of is how they will often have a a connection to smallpox itself. So, for instance, 
So for instance, uh, in India, the goddess Shatala, whose name means the one who cools in Sanskrit. Um, and I really loved that because, of course, one of the symptoms of smallpox is a, a fever and feeling like your skin is on fire. So you would perform a ritual, I think, which would involve cooling water while praying to Shatala. Um, so it's both medicine and uh, religious practice, which I think in a kind of contemporary secular sense, we often think of as very far apart, but they weren't really conceived of this time. Absolutely. And I, I love the, the you talk about the cultures that um, believe, uh, believe the disease came from a demon. Yes. And so there's, there's the red treatment and you put a whole bunch of red in the room yes. and that would scare away the demon and the disease. Um, that, that was an interesting contrast to the, uh, to the cooling uh, Shatala. Yeah, yeah. And what's really interesting is that the red treatment is kind of found in lots of different cultures of some kind. Um, yeah. So in Elizabethan England, they are wrapping you up in red blankets and they have a fire on and they, um, yeah, ideally they say you should be in a red room. Uh, but this stretches as far as uh, Japan where, yeah, the smallpox, which is configured of as a demon, is said to be terrified of the color red as well. So it's kind of interesting how different kind of very different medicinal cultures will come arrive at the same conclusions. Hmm. Now the the folktale you give about the uh, the seven foot samurai who could uh, uh, defend the island he was exiled to against the arrival of smallpox with his arrow, like just these fantastic stories from around the world about um, how different cultures, pre modern cultures, try and, and, and wrestle with this disease and give meaning to it and um, try to. Uh, master through some sort of understanding given the the skill sets that they have at the time um so episode two is the forgotten terror and you consider the human toll of smallpox over the centuries um who were some of the figures you discuss and, and what were some of the big events in this history i mean i, I guess i'm asking for a <laughs> give give us a couple centuries of smallpox history <laughs> in, in, in two minutes what are okay. some of the, the big events and some of the um um, you know, historically no noteworthy characters that you discuss? Yeah, well, I think in terms of big events, I think what springs to mind is when one half of the world meets the other. Yeah. Right, because in Europe and Asia and parts of Africa, smallpox is so commonplace by the 1500s, or the age of discovery, as it's called. You know, it's endemic, meaning mm -hmm. that Nearly everybody has caught it in the cities and is basically immune already, apart from children who are born without immunity. And, and you don't count your children until they've survived smallpox, right? I know. Yeah. Isn't that the most heartbreaking yeah. phrase? Yeah. It's very rough. <laughs> it's very rough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it's considered uh, by most of the people in these places to actually be a children's disease. Mm. Um and the Persian scholar um, Abu Bakr al-Razi um, actually writes about smallpox in the ninth century, and he theorizes it to be kind of just a byproduct of the body maturing um, as a child grows into an adult. I think he actually says it's something like uh, like when your blood ferments like wine, like grapes turning into wine. Um, he uses as that wine age. metaphor, right? As a yeah. Yeah, it's so evocative. Yeah. Um, and that this, you know, this causes the pockmarks, the fever and the rash. Right. Um, but of course, in what is called the New World, meaning the Americas, mm -hmm. you have this huge population who were just totally uncontacted 
Uh, there's no inbuilt societal immunity. And so those first European expeditions that carry the disease are basically an apocalyptic event um, to indigenous populations uh, because people all contract the disease at once. And there's nobody actually to look after them. And many communities will literally just die of starvation, not even of the disease itself, because there's just not enough healthy people there. Um, and, and to collect priest, food, to, to yes. attend to the sick, to, uh, to, to run society. Yeah, it's completely, you know, unfathomable, I think, to the, to the Europeans outside of something, you know, like the Black Death. Uh, the kind of death that um, actually kind of uh, arrives in, in villages and towns almost before they do. So, you know, a relatively small Spanish force can actually just roll through these Aztec cities um, because the disease kind of precedes them. Yeah, it's moving along the trade routes. I mean, I think you mentioned yes. uh, the Incan emperor um, dies and yes. plunges the, the empire into civil war and eventually Atahualpa is is sort of in charge when um, is it Pizarro comes in, so um, yeah, and it, it just I mean it's it's this horrifying disease um, like the Black Death in in medieval Europe, but the Black Death came via merchants and spread uh, via commerce, whereas this is being introduced by um, uh, rapacious conquistadors who um, who are willing to, uh, if they don't quite understand the disease, take advantage of the disease's impact on um, the Mexica and on the Inca and the remnants of the Maya and anybody else, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, and it's, it's really chilling, actually, um, how just a, a little bit later on in the uh, colonial America in the 1700s, we get, you know, an example of smallpox essentially being used uh, in biological warfare. Uh, the British military generals are essentially perfectly aware that they have a kind of immunity to smallpox that native populations don't. And when um, a military fort, Fort Pitt, I believe, um, is being besieged by the Ottawa indigenous people, uh, they consider, I'm not sure if they actually do, it's a bit murky here, uh, giving those populations, um, those people, smallpox-infected blankets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even you know, as, as high up as Amherst are, are sort of musing on ways to somehow get the disease amongst uh, amongst the enemy. Um, now, what's what I found so fascinating um, in in your discussion was um, you talk about how in the West it's it's a disease of childhood in the virgin field epidemic of the new world, it just tears through everybody. But going back to the West and and going to to China, um, it's also a disease that can impact the the very elite much more substantially because they're they're isolated, right? Could you could you talk about that and talk about the the Chinese emperor and 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 uh, Queen Elizabeth? Yeah. So this was an interesting um, fact that I didn't expect to find but of course there is a class element to you know smallpox being smallpox being endemic and in these you know urban cities in Europe which are very overcramped you know very uh, you know very overcrowded lots of small housing smallpox just raises through um, those populations and so the only people who aren't immune or dead are the children who then catch it 
Um, but of course, this isn't how a very small portion of the population, uh, the aristocracy, live. Um, and because they are largely separated uh, from the urban populations, because they uh, live with, you know, uh, other aristocrats in large palaces and things like this, um, they are the exception to the rule that smallpox will get you in childhood. And often they will only catch it in adulthood because they haven't built up that immunity yet. And this causes real chaos in lots and lots of parts of the West and also in China. So, yeah, Queen Elizabeth, um, Queen Elizabeth I, I should say, um, (laughs) (laughs) catches it. Um, And there's a real possibility that she will die and die airless at that time, which... um, in a country that's only very recently had the Reformation, threatens throwing the whole country into another civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, in China, uh, the third emperor of the Qing dynasty, who's called the Kangxi Emperor, um, is actually chosen to be emperor. He's got older brothers, which is not usually how inheritance um, of royal titles, as we think of it, goes. Um, but he's chosen to be emperor because he has already caught smallpox. So it's considered that having already caught it, he cannot catch it again. He's immune and therefore stands the greatest chance of not dying of smallpox and living a long and stable reign. Yeah, yeah. And and, and becomes a, um, I mean, engages in various forms of public health and tries to, to tackle the disease. I mean, this becomes uh, uh, an aspect of... Uh, you know, one one of these, you know, sort of great emperors in Chinese history's uh, reign. Um, where are we? So uh, the third uh, the third episode is chasing the sun, and you here I, I really appreciated this global context because it it undermines that old um, sort of great man, great great white man in history narrative. You know, Edward Jenner just just figuring it out one day, right? Because uh, you discuss the Chinese and the Turkish origins of n- not vaccination per se, but inoculation. Um, and then look about some of the debates uh, around vaccination. And, and I found this to be a really uh, fascinating example of the global nature of the history of disease and proof that the Eurocentric narratives um, will always be incomplete because there's so much exchange of ideas and, 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 and developments that you can't have anything in isolation. So could you tell us a bit about the, the Chinese and Tur- Turkish origins and, and maybe the difference between um, inoculation and then vaccination. Yeah, so I think this was the most exciting part of my research for me when I was um, first reading about this. I was like, you know, I've really, I've really got to tell this story. So inoculation is different from vaccination. They're often used interchangeably now, but um, for our purposes, inoculation is when you use usually some scabs of smallpox from an infected patient and use them to induce a mild case in that patient to essentially stimulate immunity. Um, And this differs from vaccination, which later on will use cowpox. Um, The origins of where exactly it comes from are not sure. The earliest recorded mention is actually in the Kangxi Emperor's, uh, I think just a little bit before the Kangxi Emperor's a little bit before the Kangxi Emperor's reign, uh, and that was in 1549. And 
It most likely spread out that from there to India, Africa, and parts of the Middle East, although it's also very possible uh, that people came up with it independently. And what's really interesting about this is there's a big gap here. Like 1549, that's really early. But there's a really big gap between the um, Chinese use of inoculation to the European adoption. And it's not as if European visitors didn't notice that people in Turkey and people in India and people in China were uh, adopting this practice of inoculation. Um, But because, as I said really early on, so much of inoculation was wrapped up in religious ritual, which is how medicine was just practiced, um, most of them just kind of dismissed it as a sort of, you know, a pagan superstitious practice, like witch doctoring, um, that didn't really merit any further attention. Um, I think one or two British doctors do, you know, do come and go to the Royal Society of Surgeons and say, you know, hey, this kind of seems interesting. Should we be trying this? But they're largely dismissed as eccentrics. So it's really, I mean, (laughs) it's not a morality tale, but it is interesting how attitudes of European Enlightenment um, and kind of uh, superiority can actually hinder progress Mm -hmm. uh, versus Mm -hmm. the kind of Eurocentric narrative that uh, was kind of uniquely European enlightenment that brought about progress. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, the inoculation is using the actual smallpox, some of the scabs and would they, well, there were a couple of ways they'd make an incision and put it under your skin or, and would they, yes. would they grind it up and, and? Yes, they'd. Um, so there's a couple of ways to, to do this. One of the most gnarly ways uh, in China is they grind, they grind up the scabs into a powder and then you snort it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so many, so many jokes to make right now. So it, was, it was a party drug. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, yes, the other way to do it was, uh, yeah, they would uh, grind up these um, scabs. And I think this is how they did it in Turkey. And then, yeah, would make an incision on the arm, would rub the uh, ground up matter into the arm and then bind it up and usually say a prayer of some kind um, during this process. So closer to uh, what we now think of vaccination with a needle, mm-hmm. and so that that's in, inoculation. And then what 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 is the vaccination breakthrough? Um, and I mean, we, we we we've been talking trash about gender, but it, but it is, it is a pretty it is a pretty <laughs> important is, moment, and, 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 yeah. and it is a work of genius. But what uh, what so what how how does what he develops differ from um, earlier forms of inoculation? Yeah, so Edward Jenner is a a country doctor, and the story goes that you know he he hears a a milkmaid repeat an old wives' tale, which is that um, milkmaids don't get smallpox because they've already had cowpox, um, and from there the, the story goes. He goes and does his experiments and uh, discovers that cowpox, which is a much much milder essential kind of relative of smallpox uh it doesn't there's no recorded deaths from cowpox largely the marks only come on your hands or where you've where you've touched the infected animal and it can't be passed from human to human um so you'd rather have cowpox than smallpox obviously you'd rather have neither but if you had to choose yeah 
Yeah, but I mean, um, I sort of say, you know, this is the old wives' tale because I actually think it's got a more interesting, the discovery itself has a more interesting relationship to inoculation, which is that, you know, the Brits eventually get over themselves and do adopt inoculation as a widespread practice. Um, And when this happens, essentially, uh, with inoculation, you should notice, you know, that you get what should be a mild case of smallpox. And it seemed that people who were in close contact with animals noticed that they didn't when they were inoculated. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, And I think this... If you look at Jenna's writings, it seems to be that this is actually where he understands um, what's happening here and how it can be used, essentially, to create a new practice of inoculation uh, called vaccination, uh, vaca actually coming from cow. Um, so it's very reliant on that earlier discovery, I think, mm-hmm. of inoculation, essentially. And then and then just to um, underscore that main point, the this process, uh, the side effects are less intense. So you should uh, maybe have a couple bumps, but you're not going to get like a, a a mild case of smallpox. I don't, I don't think I want a mild case. Um, no, <laughs> no, yeah, I'd still take cowpox got, any day. <laughs> yeah, and some people got very sick. Uh, yes, and and I mean, there's a chance of um, of the earlier form inoculation actually going going awry. So it's an yes. imperfect system. Whereas this is much safer yeah Um, there's actually a really i don't think i i fit it into the podcast but there's a really i think um tragic anecdote of so when inoculation first comes to england it's considered to be very trendy and all the society ladies want to try it so they have (laughs) inoculation parties but because you know they're good christian ladies they also want to give the gift to um you know local local children who may not be able to afford to get a, a fancy doctor to come and do the practice. So what they'll do is they'll, you know, invite the village children over to come and be inoculated, but then they send them back to their tiny homes, which they probably share with several other brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and things like this. And in doing this, accidentally create outbreaks of oh, smallpox. They're, they're, shedding, they're shedding the virus. Yes. Oh, yeah, so it's oh. it's a really, really good, I think, story of how, you know, you can have the best of intentions, which I truly did believe they did, but, you know, you need public health measures. You need to kind of isolate those children while they have the disease and all the rest of it. Right. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, well, speaking of children, um, episode four, uh, A Gift from Heaven, starts with this. Uh, I mean, again, you're you're a great storyteller. And um, the, the start of this episode with um, this sh- a British ship leaving Bengal. Um, is it on its way to Benkulu in Sumatra? Uh, it's dis- on its way to Ind- Indonesia, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think Benkulu. Um, um, but uh, there's a group of orphans of mm. South Asian orphans from Bengal under British control. What what's 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 going on here? What are these what are these children doing, or, or what are they being used for? Yeah, so essentially, at this point, the vaccine has been invented by Jenna. It's very quickly uh, taken up by the um, British government. They think it's a brilliant idea, um, but the problem that they face is that cowpox, which is the material used to vaccinate people, is really terrible at traveling. It completely degrades in hot climates. 
um, and it can't travel far. And this is before they have, you know, um, freeze-dried vaccine and things like that. So it's basically impossible to take on long journeys. Now, the solution that some enterprising doctors come to is using people, and more specifically children, and more specifically than that, pauper children, um, so orphans essentially, as essentially human containers for the vaccine. So you vaccinate. Because they, they haven't they haven't caught the disease. They're yes. they're young enough so that okay. Yes, and also they don't eat as much, and so they're just cheaper to transport. And um, so you you would vaccinate one child. You'd wait for them to develop the pustules on their hands. Then you would use that to vaccinate the next, and so on for as long as you needed to on these these long long seed journeys. And it's it's about on a, a a weekly cycle that you need to to take take the sample from one child and then put it in the next and then after about a, w- a week. So if you've got a, 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 a sailboat journey of two months, you need just under a dozen children to, uh, yes. to yeah, trans- there's actually, you know, we have the writings of a doctor doing the kind of the maths to figure out how many orphans he'll need. And he's like, well, I better have a couple spare just in case it takes a bit longer, you know, there's bad weather. Um, and yeah, so that's exactly how they calculated it. Yeah, and, the, and it's such an important moment in the history of disease and history of medicine. But for someone like me who works on the history of imperialism, it's so telling in regards to um, the use of uh, subject bodies, use of colonized bodies for purposes that the you know the, the the empires are not only controlling the land and the economy, but the very the bodies <laughs> and. Um, Oh man! Yeah, but I mean, it was. I, why I just found that fascinating. I'm sorry, go on. I was just going to. It was sort of why I wanted to start the episode with those children, um, because you know, the vaccine being discovered is obviously a a yay, brilliant moment. But I kind of wanted to foreshadow, you know, the the ethical complexity that mm-hmm. that happens there. Do you know that uh, comes with the vaccine, especially with how hastily it is adopted by the British government. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just the British that are doing this and the, the Spanish also, um, you know, they're, they're governing the Philippines at this time. And they, um, with the Spanish galleons, they'd send children across the, uh, the Pacific um, containing the, um, the, uh, uh, the disease. Um, so the, the fifth episode, um, you engage the 19th century anti-vaccination movement. Um, and, you do, and, you know, obviously this <laughs> resonates with things that we've seen recently. Um, it's part of, the, part of the inspiration for for the series. Um, but you do a fantastic job of contextualizing vaccine opposition in the the tumult that is 19th century Britain. Um, and I, I thought you showed it like a really, really great degree of historical empathy for these individuals who are caught up in these various power relationships, um, disruptions to the social order, um, this this oppressive uh, moment in, in British governance after Peterloo and so forth. Um, could, could you give us a, a, a the, again the short version of the this nineteenth century anti vaccination movement and what are their concerns? Yeah, so with my with my background in kind of extremism and radical politics, I obviously loved researching and writing this episode. Um, 
we were actually really lucky to recruit uh, Dr. Oscar Cox Jensen, uh, who's actually at my my old university, UEA, uh, who does the history of protest songs. And I got him to to sing us an old anti-vax song, which he told is, me. Oh, it's I so amazing. It's, it's, it sounds like something from the end of one of the QAnon episodes. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> no. QAnon Anonymous, excuse me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted. Uh, but no, I, I, yeah, he, he told me that these were original lyrics which were set to the tune of drinking hall songs, which I think that gave you kind of an uh, insight into the kind of populist, popular character of the anti-vaccination movement with the British working classes. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, because I, uh, I was aware, I suppose, that lots of people listening to the podcast would be pro-vaccine people right um and i think it's really easy in that case you think you know great i love this new invention um and then you kind of just dismiss all of the kind of people who have opposed that invention as you know kind of reactionaries or religious zealots um or just you know simple-minded stupid people um but it was actually much more complicated than that it was a um there was a very, very strong working class resistance to the vaccine in the UK, which is uh, where I narrowed in on for this just because it felt like such a kind of rich um, movement. And they they were responding essentially to a British state that by way of kind of early innovations in public health had sort of treated the poor and the working classes as you know this problem that needed to be to be solved to be corralled to be dispossessed um and none of them had any say in it because they couldn't vote um and you know you get these kind of incredibly violent moments of resistance to any kind of working class sort of self-assertion at this time, um, any kind of demand for political representation is nearly always met with the, the full brutal force of the British state. So essentially when a, a law is introduced saying, uh, vaccinate your newborn baby um, or you will be fined, I forget the amount, but it's, it's a huge amount in 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 real terms for these people. Um, this is kind of treated, you know, not as, oh, they're looking after our, our, you know, they're looking out for our health, but, you know, another kind of brutal imposition, and this time not just on you, you as a parent, but on your newborn child, which I think just kind of uh, just gets this kind of huge wave of outrage and there's there's uh, riots in Leicester, um, in fact, the the opposition is so strong in Leicester that Leicester Council write to the British government saying, please stop us, you know, please let us stop enforcing these fines. We don't want to enforce them. They're going to they're going to kill us all. The British government responds, you know, no, keep on enforcing the fines. Um, and yeah, it, the city just explodes. There's a three day demonstration. They're hanging effigies of Jenna. It's just this kind of completely brutal response. Um, and so I suppose I wanted to show that 
yes, again, I think vaccines are, are good. You won't you won't hear of a, a better vaccine advocate than me. Um, but also that, you know, there's a way to respond to lack of trust in public health institutions. Um, and it's not going to be with kind of punitive measures, you know, even if, as I think I say, you know, the more kind of punitive measures the government introduce, yes, they get results, more people are vaccinated, but it just erodes that trust. And it means that the the violent resistance that they will receive the next time will just be twice as bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, so much resonance with, um, what we've been going through in the past couple of years. Um, so the the final episode, The Last Battle, um, you take us to this amazing moment in disease history, which is the, the eradication of wild smallpox in the 19, late 1970s. Um, what were some of the final techniques used to conquer the disease? You talk about the concept of um, ring fence vaccination, and you also profile an American doctor who was an amazing figure who broke through a number of glass ceilings and also in her field work in uh, West Bengal um, really did some brave things. So um, could you, th- th- those are, those were two things that really stood out from this, uh, this, this part of the story. So could you tell us about the, the final campaign? Yeah. I mean, gosh, reading about the WHO campaign, it feels slightly crazy that it worked, you know, they were they were they were working with just you know you you read about it and they're working with so many hands tied behind their back to a certain extent they don't have enough vaccines to vaccinate everyone they don't have enough money to pay everyone to vaccinate everyone uh, they're often having to rely on support from uh, governments who are often in the poorest parts of the world because these are the places that haven't eradicated smallpox and um Things are also just constantly going wrong. There's wars, there's famines, just about everything that could disrupt their work does. Um, So this is where they come up with the concept of ring fence vaccination, essentially. Uh, Because as I say, there's not enough vaccines to vaccinate every single person. You can't just do, uh, you know, blanket vaccination. Uh, And this is a concept that comes up with, that's come, this is a concept that, uh, yeah, Dr. Donald Henderson comes up with. So this is where the concept of ring fence vaccination comes in, uh, which is con- created by a doctor called William Fagey. Um, and William Fagey had an interesting background where as a summer job, he worked as a forest firefighter. And he realised essentially um, that you can't douse a whole forest with water. Um, in these great, you know, American landscapes, uh, when a tree is on fire, what you do is you cut down all the tre- other trees around it, so essentially that the fire has nowhere to go and can uh, doesn't become a wildfire. And he adopts a similar approach with the fact that they don't have enough vaccines. So it becomes both a public health campaign and a kind of fact-finding mission where the WHO volunteers, um, both local and um, both local and, and from things like the Peace Corps, um, will go around marketplaces with pictures of people with smallpox. And will, I think, at first they are offering a 
$10 reward and then I think it well first it's a $5 reward and then it's a $10 reward uh, for anyone who can give them a confirmed case of smallpox so people will come back and say you know someone in my village has got smallpox or I heard over in the next village that someone's got smallpox and they will go they'll check it out and they'll vaccinate everyone in the vicinity if it is smallpox Um, So it's essentially a clever way of stopping the disease from spreading. You can't really do anything for that person who's got smallpox apart from make them comfortable and pray. But you can stop everyone else who might come in contact with them from catching it and therefore spreading it. Um, Yeah, the second thing you mentioned. uh, So so, so essentially that that creates a ring of vaccinated people around the village so it doesn't spread out through natural social networks or exactly what have you yeah 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 and then the 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 second um figure when you talk about was the um the american uh, physician and working in west bengal yeah so this is dr cornelia davis um uh i her autobiography uh i think it's called something like Searching for Shitala, uh, which is about her her story on the WHO campaign. Um, it's a real treat to read. Uh, she's really amazingly open and honest about, you know, the experiences of being a junior doctor, um, not to mention a black female junior doctor in India at the time. Um, and she's the, she's the only one um, out there. And I think she meets one other woman uh, total. Um But there's a story in there that was just particularly amazing that I wanted to highlight, which is when she's working on the border of West Bengal and Bangladesh. Um, This is a very new border. Uh, It's established, I think, uh, probably less than 10 years before. Um, So there are official border crossings, but very few people use them uh, because they mostly prefer to take the routes of illegal smugglers because they mostly prefer to take the routes of illegal smugglers who they pay to ferry them across. Um, but each one of those people coming across represents a big risk to the WHO because if you eradicate smallpox in one country, it may well just get across via the smugglers anyway. And what's worse is many more people are taking these routes than the official border crossings. So the WHO has permission to uh, have a vaccinator at every official border crossing. But from what Davis hears while she's out there, they're just... They're not getting that many people. And she can see as she drives along in a WHO jeep that many, many more uh, are coming through via the smuggler routes. So she does something really, really brave, which I cannot imagine doing in her situation. And she's warned against it by pretty much everyone. Um, But she decides to get in touch with the smugglers themselves to see if she can station vaccinators on their routes. And... What's amazing is that it actually works. They agree to this. And what's more, it seems like they actually encourage their passengers to get vaccinated. Um, I think it's a great story, essentially, to show how how flexible the campaign had to be at times. Um, It couldn't be all above board and official. They were just simply working with uh, too many kind of restrictions already Um, and yeah, they sometimes had to be brave. They sometimes had to be 
um, even work outside the law, in the gray areas of the law, I suppose. And it also reveals how uh, sometimes these state systems, which we think of as these great leviathans, you know, the, the Indian government with all its powerful bureaucracy can't really control what's going on. Um, this is a similar story in the colonial empires, the uh, empires trying to control disease flow in, in colonial Vietnam. And they, 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 they can't, there's just so much going on on the ground and through black and gray markets. Um, yeah, I found, I found, uh, Dr. Davis's story just absolutely amazing. Um, so are there any lessons, uh, from the series as a whole? I mean, do you, uh, you, when, you know, what, what, what do you want listeners to walk away with from, uh, from this series? It's hmm. a really good question. I think I wanted people to feel connected to the story of this invention um, to, I guess, get that sense of understanding and empathy of how just radically it has changed human life. Um, Because I think this is something that can be lost on people. It certainly felt lost on me when people are talking about COVID and mRNA and Pfizer, you know, all this kind of technological sort of highly scientific brilliance. Um, you kind of, it's difficult to remember that human element to the story of vaccination. Um, something that I often think about when I think about history is I kind of always wonder what it was like to to live there, to experience it at the time. Um, and I suppose I wanted this series to do a similar thing, to kind of have us see vaccines and the story of vaccines through the eyes of the people who may have longed for the eradication of smallpox, but could never have dreamed it would actually happen. Do you know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I mean, your your portraits of, of what it was like, you know, being a parent in, in mm. uh early 19th century England um, with your children uh, being vulnerable to this disease or you know, even a more well-known figure like uh, Queen Victoria and also one of her, um, I don't know what the, is lady in waiting the right term? Oh yeah. One of, one of her attendants um, who, you know, both Queen Victoria and her attendant were both severely um, scarred uh, from smallpox. And so you talk about the, the way in which we were familiar with the portraits of Queen Victoria with that thick makeup on, but much of that was to cover up the, um, the, the marks. <coughs> I mean, and just how common um, sorry, that would have been. Just to say it was Queen yeah. Elizabeth, if you wanted to do Did it I say again. Victoria? I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I just, I know I would be annoyed at myself if I, <laughs> well, if I said that. I'm really annoyed at myself. I got a PhD in European history. I know that. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, sorry, Queen Elizabeth. Um, but with that thick makeup and mm. um, and the way in which they um, you know are, are disfigured and how how common that mark would be. Yeah, uh, I think at one point you read about a wanted poster where yeah. the way to identify the culprit was that he did not have pox marks. I know, so that isn't that, would, that incredible? Yeah. yeah, you would have really stood out if you didn't have smallpox scars which yeah. is amazing to think about. Certainly something I think about a lot now with him whenever I look at historical dramas, you know, or mm. um, mm-hmm. <laughs> people always say, you know, this isn't historically accurate. This isn't historically accurate. You know, if you wanted to be historically accurate, they should all have kind of big pitted scars all over their face. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the series does a really fantastic job at making um, medical history, history accessible to the general public. Um 
Did your work on the series change the way you think about bringing academic work to a wider audience, um, the, the nature and possibilities of uh, public-facing scholarship? Yeah, I think it did. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful to have had my training in academia, but I think I always want to be directing my work to the general public. I don't think you need to... I think some academics think you maybe need to kind of sacrifice something if you do that. It has to be, you know, um, it has to be too kind of popular and too kind of uh, sort of uh, simplified. But I actually think that's, I think that's a very kind of old-fashioned way of looking at it. And I'm very lucky that, you know, uh, many people who are not in academia are really deeply interested in the same fields that I'm interested in and are, I think, hungry for kind of, uh, you know, high quality kind of research, but told accessibly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you put the series up on Patreon and um, it's free to download on Patreon and also a wide range of uh, platforms, but you note that listeners can support the series and your work through Patreon. Um, and this, this importantly keeps your work independent. Um and while it's widely done in the podcasting world, I wonder if some academics might be reluctant to pursue that model. Do you have any sort of thoughts, reflections, or suggestions for scholars who might consider such an option? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I really strongly believe in, which once upon a time was supposed to be the promise of the internet, uh, was, you know, having good quality research, good quality information available to all. Um, yeah, then something happened. <laughs> something happened. I'm not then sure something what. something very strange happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of open access research and I, you know, always try to uh, make sure if I publish anywhere that it's open access. Um, but also naturally, I mean, the tension with all of this is that... Um, particularly as an early career researcher, if you're not a member of a, if you're not a faculty member at a university, you need to get paid, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm a big believer. Our faculty need a little supplement for our... Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm a big believer in the Patreon model for that reason. You can release the content for free. Anyone who wants to can watch it but people who believe in your project can still support you. Um, and I think that's just been really liberating for the kind of content, the kind of research I want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you've been really generous with your time, but uh, I've got two more questions before I let you go. Um, first, can you suggest two books or uh, two podcasts uh, for our listeners? Yeah, I'll give you a give you a book and a podcast to be okay, great. fair. So the first is the podcast, and it would be really churlish of me not to mention them because they uh, helped produce vaccine and made it as lovely as it is. Uh, so this is Fall of Civilizations podcast, uh, which is a history podcast, which is a very similar feel to vaccine. It takes a look at the a fall of a different civilization each episode um, and has lovely voice acting and high quality sound. Um, and... Uh, oh, and, and and I should say it's also a lot longer than vaccine. You know, you're going <laughs> to want like a long drive while you listen to this, but it's really nice. And you'll also hear me do some voice acting for that because I do. That. Oh, wow. <laughs> but by the way, your, your voice actors throughout the series are fantastic. They did such a great yeah, job. Yeah, they're great, aren't they? Yeah. Um, 
Yes. So the book I would recommend, this is going to be quite out of left field, I think. But uh, I think if, you know, people are listening to this, they're probably interested in history. And it's one of my favorite history books. It's uh, Britain BC by Francis Pryor, uh, which is a look at the um, yeah pre-Roman era of British history. And um, I think appeals to me as a history reader and lots of the ways I tried to get at with um, vaccine, although Francis Pryor has a much harder job because no one was writing stuff down back then, uh, at least not in Britain they weren't. So, uh, But it's about trying to, through archaeology and through the structures that we still have um, of that era, of trying to figure out, I think, what these populations were like, what they believed in, how they saw the world. It's really, really well-written and evocative um, and I think does have a connection a bit to what we're talking about because uh, Pryor's argument is that he thinks British people still over-identify with the Romans uh, because the British Empire obviously romanticised the Roman Empire and saw it as their forefathers, but he argues that this, you know, uh, leads to a uh, denigration of um, indigenous people um, and lots of other kind of bad stuff and kind of what you might call the national ideology um, and that people should also identify with the kind of pre-Roman Empire um, Britain. And I think it's a, a I probably I probably bastardized his argument a little bit, but it was very convincing <laughs> when he wrote it. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Great. Um, finally, what are you working on now? Um, what can we hope to see from you next? And and where can the listeners find you and your work? Yeah, so I am working as a postdoctoral researcher for an AHRC funded project, which is um, called Everything is Connected, Conspiracy Theories in the Internet, uh, which is trying to figure out a bit, a bit like you were t- and I were talking about when something went wrong. Uh, what did the internet do to conspiracy theories and did it make them worse uh, is the question that we're all struggling with. So, um, or, or better, or better. Um, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can also, I'm still working for QAnon Anonymous. I'm still, um, yeah, uh, doing an episode uh, per month for them on various quirks in British or conspiracy or reactionary politics. Um, and also, if you want to listen to Vaccine, you can find it on any podcast app. Um, but you can also find it on YouTube as well, where we have some quite lovely footage of if that's the way you prefer to to consume content. And um, and I will tell listeners that you are funny on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it you can also good. follow you're me quite, on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're quite funny on Twitter. Um, so, um, Annie Kelly, thank you so much for um, speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been such a great conversation. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Annie Kelly about her podcast series, Vaccine, the Human Story. You can find the podcast on Patreon and most podcast platforms. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.